1968, a new comedy show made its uh, debut on television. It was called Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In. You remember that? Thank you. You just dated yourselves, right? No. Yeah, Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In, or in some cases, it was just called Laugh-In. Just Laugh-In. One of the popular sketches on the show featured uh, two news anchormen, one presenting the news of the present, while the other presented the news of the future. And in regards to the news of the future, that anchorman would report these totally made up and outlandish news stories to mock some of the political and the the social issues of the day. It was completely meant as a gag, as a spoof, as they tried to be as funny as possible. However, there were two things reported that actually came true. In 1969, in that sketch, the news of the future anchorman jokingly reported that actor Ronald Reagan had been elected President of the United States. And he also reported that the Berlin Wall had fallen. Even in their attempt at humor, these two predictions actually came true. Someone once said, even a broken clock gets the time right twice a day. So it should be of no surprise that some predictions are right some of the time. But as we will see this morning, God's prophets are right 100% of the time. If you remember from last week, Daniel was burdened over his people because only a small number of the Jews left Babylon and returned to Jerusalem when they were given an opportunity. Most of the Jews decided to stay put in a land and in a culture that was not their own. For that was all that they knew. For those who were under the age of 70 years old, they had never been to the promised land, they had never worshiped at the temple. And so there was no real interest for them to return. Well, Daniel was saddened by this. And he was also saddened by the news he was hearing about those who did return to Jerusalem. They were supposed to be working hard on the temple on the temple rebuilding project. But some of them had lost heart for the work and were putting in little to no effort. And then you had the locals of the territory who were giving the builders a hard time that brought the rebuilding project to a standstill. All of this burdened Daniel. And so for three weeks, he entered into a time of mourning where he fasted and prayed. 
He was concerned about the future of his people. And if you recall from last week, an angel who had been locked into battle with a demon comes to Daniel to share a vision of what was in store for his people. Now that brings us to Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11, where this angel explains the vision concerning the kings and the kingdoms to come. And let me say that we have already talked about many of these kings and kingdoms. So to some degree, in some way, this is going to seem like a review. But it's a review to a much, much greater detail. Okay? So if you have your Bible... Turn to Daniel chapter 11, and we will begin with verse 1. She'll be on the board behind me. Daniel 11, beginning with verse 1. We are told, In the first year of Darius the Mede, I arose to be an encouragement and a protection for him. And now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings are going to arise in Persia. Then a fourth will gain far more riches than all of them. As soon as he becomes strong through his riches, he will arouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece. Okay, I'm going to say something that might catch some of you off guard. This first verse actually fits better at the end of chapter 10 than at the beginning of chapter 11. And before you chase me out of here as a heretic, I need to remind you that chapter breaks and verse numbers were not included in Scripture. They are not inspired by God. They were added much later in the 13th century by man to help us navigate through the Bible. Okay? You with me? Anyway, in verse 1, the same angel who was going to help Michael the archangel to battle the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece, who are two demons, as we learned last week, was also supporting Darius the Mede, who was appointed by King Cyrus of Persia to rule over Babylon. In 538 B.C., King Cyrus issued a decree to allow the Jews to re- to return to leave Babylon and return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And with that, Darius the Mede decreed that the full cost of the rebuilding project was to be funded from his royal treasury. So that's how this angel was influencing Darius the Mede in a positive way to help God's people. Okay? Now in verse 2, we transition to Daniel's vision. As you know, at this time, Cyrus, 
is the king of Persia. Okay? Cyrus is the king of Persia, and the angel says that three more kings will come after him, and then there will be a fourth in the Persian Empire who is richer and stronger than them all. History tells us that Cambyses, the first son of Cyrus, became the next king of Persia. And after him came Pseudo-Smyrdas. Pseudo-Smyrdas. That's a weird name, isn't it? Pseudo-Smyrdas? But it's a very fitting name given to him by historians. As you know, pseudo is another word for fake. And in this case, it refers to a person who pretends to be someone they are not. And this guy actually gained access to the royal household because he looked like Cambus's brother. His real brother had been murdered and nobody knew about it. So this guy looks like Cambus's brother, Smyrtus. And he used his mistaken identity to become the king. Pseudo-Smyrtus was an imposter who stayed on the throne for about seven months. He didn't last long until he was overthrown by Darius the Great. Darius the Great is different from Darius the Mede. There are several Dariuses in the Bible. And Darius the Great ruled for over 30 years. And after him came the fourth king. Not the last king, but the fourth king. A king we need to take note of. The fourth king, mentioned by the angel, we know as Xerxes, whom the Jews called Ahasuerus. And you might remember him from the book of Esther. Xerxes did not like the Greeks. And after four years, with all of his riches, he amasses an army of over two million soldiers. He invades Greece, and he has some victories, but he also stirs up another who takes center stage, and he wants to make the Persians pay. And he too is a person we have already met. Let's continue with verse 3. And a mighty king will arise, and he will rule with great authority and do as he pleases. But as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom will be broken up and parceled out toward the four points of of the compass. Though not to be his own descendants, nor according to his authority which he has yielded. For his sovereignty will be uprooted and given to others besides them. Besides his descendants. Of course, we know the angel is talking about Alexander the Great of Greece, who defeats Persia. If you remember in a previous vision, he was described as the leopard. Remember that? He was the leopard who conquered the known world with cunning and with speed. But at the height of his power, at the age of 33, Alexander dies. His sons are murdered. 
and with no living heir, the Grecian Empire which he built is eventually divided by four of his generals. The four compass points. Four of his generals who make themselves kings over their kingdoms. Should be a map up there. One of these kings is Ptolemy, who ruled over the region of Egypt, which is to the south of Israel. I'm trying to help you here. To the south of Israel. While another was named Seleucus, who ruled over a vast territory to include modern-day Syria, which is to the north of Israel. These two kings and their successors had many skirmishes and fought six major wars. And in doing so, they made life miserable for those in Israel who were geographically caught in the middle between the two of them. Now in this next portion, beginning with verse 5, we will continue with the history between these two Grecian empires, kingdoms, excuse me, kingdoms. A history of conflict that spans over a 150 year period and sounds much like an over the top soap opera. Okay? Verse 5. <clears throat> then the king of the south will grow strong, along with one of his princes who will gain ascendancy over him and obtain dominion. His dominion will be a great dominion indeed. After some years, they will form an alliance. And the daughter, pay attention, and the daughter of the king of the south will come to the king of the north to carry out a peaceful agreement. But she will not retain her position of power, nor will he remain in his power. But she will be given up along with those who brought her in and the one who sired her as well as he who supported her in those times. Okay, let me explain all this. You can thank me later. <clears throat> in those days, this is, so, this is so wild. In those days when kingdoms were in conflict, okay? When kingdoms were in conflict, one way to bring peace between enemies was to marry off a daughter to the opposing king. So ladies be glad you were not living in those days. The Ptolemaics to the south in Egypt and the Seleucids to the north in Syria had been engaged in ongoing hostilities. But after some 30 years, there came a time when these two kingdoms tried to form an alliance through marriage. Antiochus II, the king of the north, who called himself Antiochus Theos, or Antiochus the God, I mean, we need a nickname, right? Antiochus Theos planned to marry the daughter of King Ptolemy II from the south. And his daughter's name was Berenice. Peace by marriage was the plan. But there was a problem. King Ptolemy II wanted Berenice to be the one and only. 
and her son to be the next heir to the throne. Well, that was a problem. Because Antiochus Theos was already married to Laodicea. So what's a guy to do? Yeah, it's a soap opera. What's a guy to do? Well, he divorces Laodicea and marries the younger Berenice. But after two years in this new marriage, Berenice's father dies back in Egypt. So, Antiochus Theos remarries Laodicea. She seems like a very forgiving and understanding lady. And he makes Berenice a concubine. The king has got this all figured out. He's going to get his cake and his ice cream too. But soon after their remarriage, Laodicea poisons him. So much for understanding and forgiving, right? She just poisons him dead. The king is dead. But a dispute about succession breaks out. Laodicea, who's got some power, proclaims her eldest son, Seleucus II, to be the new king. And they head to Turkey. But Berenice claimed that her son should be the next heir to the throne. And she asks for help. Well, back in Egypt, the new king, Ptolemy III, receives the request from his sister, Berenice, to come north to help place her son on the throne. He quickly travels up north with an army, through Israel, of course, and invades Syria to help place his sister's son on the throne. But when he gets to the palace in Antioch, consistent with prophecy, he learns that his sister Berenice, her son, and her royal attendants were murdered by Laodicea. He's enraged. And an all-out war breaks out. And that brings us to verse 7. It's a soap opera. But one of the descendants of her line will arise in his place. And he will come against their army and enter the fortress of the king of the north. And he will deal with them and display great strength. Also their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold he will take into captivity to Egypt. And he on his part will refrain from attacking the king of the north for some years. Then the latter will enter the realm of the king of the south but will return to his own land. You got all that? If you need coffee, there's coffee right out there. <laughs> Feel free to bring it in. <laughs> okay. This is a reference to the Laodicean War. Good name for a war. The La- it's a very fitting name for this war. The Laodicean War. And it's a total disaster for those in the north, in Syria. Ptolemy III from Egypt has too much rage and too much strength. And he soundly defeats the army of Seleucus II in Syria. Eventually, Ptolemy III returns to Egypt 
And he does so with the death of Laodicea and many spoils of war to include thousands of idols. Idols which apparently did nothing for the people in the north. 4,000 talents of gold, 40,000 talents of silver, and he gains new territories on the northern coast of Syria. Now, after a few years, Seleucus II tries to, to make a comeback, and he invades Egypt. But he's turned back in shame, and later he dies after he falls off his horse. So there's peace in the land for a few years. But spoiler alert, it doesn't last. Let's continue with verse 10. His sons will mobilize and assemble a great, a multitude of great forces. And one of them will keep on coming and overflow and pass through that he may again wage war up to his very fortress. The king of the south will be enraged and go forth and fight with the king of the north. Then the latter will raise a great multitude, but that multitude will be given into the hand of the former. When the multitude is carried away, his heart will be lifted up and he will cause tens of thousands to fall. Yet he will not prevail. For the king of the north will rise, will again raise a greater multitude than the former. And after an interval, interval of some years, he will press on with a great army and much equipment. Now in those times, many will rise up against the king of the south. The violent ones among your people will also lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision but they will fall down. Then the king of the north will come, cast up a siege ramp, and capture all well-fortified city. Capture a well-fortified city. And the forces of the south will not stand their ground, not even their choicest troops, for there will be no strength to make a stand. But he who comes against him will do so as he pleases. And no one will be able to withstand him. And he will also stay for a time in the beautiful land with destruction in his hand. He will set his face to come with the power of his whole kingdom, bringing with him a proposal of peace which he will put into effect He will also give him the daughter of women to ruin it. But she will not take a stand for him or be on his side. Then he will turn his face to the coastlands and capture many. But a commander will put a stop to his scorn against him. Moreover, he will repay him for his scorn. So he will turn his face towards the fortress of his own land, but he will stumble and fall and be found no more. Then in his place, one will arise who will send an oppressor through the jewel of his kingdom. Yet within a few days, he will be shattered, though not in anger nor in battle. I know that was a lot. I apologize. Here we are told about this next king from the north called Antiochus III. Antiochus III, who is also known as Antiochus the Great. He assumed the throne in 223 B.C. after his brother was killed. 
And like those before him, he had the goal of reuniting the kingdoms of the north and the south. The kingdoms of Egypt, south, and Syria to the north. He built a mighty army of soldiers and, and cavalry and war elephants. Got a picture up there? And he engaged the Egyptians whose army was very similar. And on Israel's soil, they are fighting on Israel's soil, the Egyptians won the battle this time. For some 15 years, it went back and forth between these two kingdoms. But eventually, with the help of mercenaries, to include Jews from Israel, Antiochus the Great eventually gets the upper hand over the Egyptians and he gains control of Israel. Okay, you follow me? With the upper hand, Antiochus the Great force, forces terms of peace on Egypt. And so what does he do? Look at verse 17 again up there. We are told he set his face to come with the power of his whole kingdom, bringing with him a proposal of peace which he will put into effect. He will also give him the daughter of women to ruin it. But she will not take a stand for him or be on his side. This is awesome. In 192 BC, to seal the peace deal, Antiochus the Great gives his daughter, Cleopatra, to the young king of the south named Ptolemy V. Now, this Cleopatra is not the same Cleopatra in the movies. Okay, This is the first of many Cleopatras. Anyway, these two kids are forced into marriage. For the sake of peace, they are forced into marriage. And here's the kicker. They actually fall in love with one another. Antiochus the Great had hoped his daughter Cleopatra would be a spy. Would be a spy for him and influence her young king husband. But just as prophesied, she changes sides. She betrays dear old dad. And she becomes a supporter of Egypt. Well, that angers dear old dad. And so Antiochus the Great goes on a rampage. He heads towards the coastlands of the Mediterranean. And there he is confronted by the new bully on the block. The Romans. Antiochus the Great is defeated... And on top of that, the Romans demand tribute. That's taxes. A lot of them. Antiochus the Great goes back to his own land, and as he sought to pillage the temple of Jupiter, he's killed by an angry mob. And just as verse 19 reads, he will stumble and fall and be seen no more. Antiochus the Great was killed and forgotten. And later, after a lot of intrigue and some murderous infighting, in 175 BC, another takes the throne in the north. Let's continue with verse 21. 
In his place, a despicable person will arise on whom the honor of kingship has not been conferred. But he will come in a time of tranquility and seize the kingdom by intrigue. The overflowing forces will be flooded away before him and shattered. And also the prince of the covenant. After an alliance is made with him, he will practice deception. And he will go up and gain power with a small force of people. In a time of tranquility, he will enter the richest parts of the realm. And he will accomplish what his fathers never did, nor his ancestors. He will distribute plunder, booty, and possessions among them. And he will devise his schemes against strongholds, but only for a time. He will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south with a large army. So the king of the south will mobilize an extremely large and mighty army for war. But he will not stand, for schemes will be devised against him. For those who eat his choice food will destroy him, and his army will overflow, but many will fall down slain. As for both kings, their hearts will be intent on evil, and they will speak evil lies to each other at the same table, but it will not succeed. For in the end, for the end is still to come at the appointed time. Then he will return to his land with much plunder, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant, and he will take action and then return to his own land. Okay. Antiochus IV seized the throne in the north, in Syria. This is the king who called himself Epiphanes, claiming to be a revelation of God. And if you recall, he is the prototype of the Antichrist who is still yet to come. He's the prototype. Epiphanes plotted his way into power. And when he became king, he robbed people of their riches. And he launched a campaign against Egypt and eventually wins by brute force And more so, it seems, through deceptive schemes he devises to undermine the Egyptians. Eventually, the kings of the north and of the south come to to the table to discuss peace. But it's a ruse by both of them. In 170 A.D., Epiphanes returns to his own land with riches from Egypt. And in Israel, he finds a Jewish rebellion in progress. His heart is set against the Jews. He hates the Jews. And he kills thousands. Murders the high priest, Onias, who's identified here as the Prince of the Covenant. And then he loots the temple. So there's no peace in Israel, but there is some semblance of peace between the north and the south. But Epiphanes is really only buying time. For he still plans to conquer Egypt. And that brings us to verse 29. I know I'm giving you a lot here, but just deal with me. At the appointed time, he will return and come into the south. 
But this last time, it will not turn out the way it did before. For ships of Kittim will come against him. Therefore, he will be disheartened and will return and become enraged at the Holy Covenant and take action. So he will come back and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Forces from him will arise, desecrate the sanctuary fortress, and do away with the regular sacrifice. And they will set up the abomination of desolation. By smooth words, he will turn to godlessness, those who act wickedly toward the covenant. But the people who know their God will display strength and take action. Those who have insight among the people will give understanding to the many, yet they will fall by sword and by flame, by captivity and by plunder for many days. Now when they fall, they will be granted a little help. And many will join with them in hypocrisy. Some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them pure until the end time because it is still to come at the appointed time. Okay. Two years later, Epiphanes invades Egypt again. But on this occasion, the Egyptians had help from the Romans. Oops. General Gaius Pompilius Linnaeus arrived with a Roman legion in ships referred to here as the ships of Kittim. And he presents Epiphanes with a letter from the Roman Senate, which reads, in effect, either you return to your homeland and keep peace, or you will face the might of Rome. Exus owes hugs and kisses the Roman Senate. Well, Epiphanes mans up. He tells the Roman general he wants to think about it. And as he is standing there, the Roman general draws a circle around him in the sand and said, take as long as you want. But don't step outside that circle until you make up your mind or else. Epiphanes gives in and agrees to turn back and keep the peace. But on his return, in his humiliation, he vents his fury on the Jews in Israel. Again, he slaughters thousands of Jews. And under the penalty of death, he prohibits the observing of the Sabbath. He puts a stop to Scripture reading. He outlaws circumcision. He declares the dietary restrictions invalid. And then the worst... He sets up an idol to Jupiter in the middle of the temple in Jerusalem and sacrifices a pig on the altar, sprinkling the pig's blood all over the temple. It was such a horrific act that regular sacrifices were stopped and the temple was left desolate. According to the angel, some of the Jews would give in to the pressure and compromise their faith. But the angel said, for those who know their God, at a heavy cost, a revival and a revolt would break out 
and liberation would come through the Maccabees. There are 135 prophecies in this chapter alone. that have been fulfilled and historically confirmed. And they are given in such great detail and with such great accuracy that Bible critics claim this must have been written after the fact by someone else. That's the only way Bible critics can explain Daniel chapter 11. It had to have been written after the fact by someone else. They hate this chapter. And I love this chapter because we know that what happened occurred historically confirmed It occurred exactly as God said it would happen. Hundreds of years in advance. And therefore, this is the the takeaway, and therefore we can be assured without any doubt that the fulfillment of prophecy still yet to come will be just as accurate. For God appointed it. Let us pray. Father, this was a a difficult uh, passage. There was a lot here. Uh, Father, maybe I should have broken it down into smaller chunks. I don't know. Uh, But Father, it was a lot to take in. But Father, I know it's 100% accurate and historically confirmed. And no one can take that away. Not even Bible critics. Thank you for being true to your word. Thank you for giving Daniel this word which he wrote down for us. It brings such confidence to us. Your word can be trusted. Thank you for it. And Father, I pray that you would use it. Use it, Lord God, to drive us closer to you and to trust you and to obey you. May you be honored and glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. That was a lot. I'll apologize. There were some pastors who have done this entire entire chapter in one <laughs> one sitting. I don't know how they did it. Uh, I probably should try maybe three, but it was just it was just a lot. I, I apologize if I if I overwhelmed uh, some of you with with history. Uh, there was just a lot. There was just a lot here. Um, I'm reminded of the prophecies concerning Jesus. There are hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament concerning Jesus. Most of them fulfilled at His first coming. His earthly ministry, His life. His, his death and His resurrection. Most have been fulfilled. There are a few that are out there that pertain to His second coming. Where He sets up His earthly kingdom. He comes in power and in strength, and in glory.
to do that. That's prophesy as well. If the prophecies of history are true and they have been fulfilled, hundreds of them, I read something from a professor. Can't remember his name. He looked at eight prophecies. And he said the odds of eight prophecies being fulfilled for one towards one guy, towards Christ. Just eight. And there have been hundreds fulfilled. But just but just eight of them. He just chose eight of them. The odds were one, and I believe with 18 zeros, for just eight prophecies to be fulfilled. One with 18 zeros after it. That would be the odds of just eight being fulfilled. We have hundreds fulfilled about Christ. Confirmed by history. If they're confirmed by history, then we can have confidence about the ones for the future, about Christ. He's coming again. That's prophesied. He's coming again. And I believe before before he comes, the church is taken away. Then there will be seven years of tribulation. And then he comes again in glory and in power. That's what I believe. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Maybe you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. I would love to introduce you to him. He's coming. He's coming. Don't be left out. Maybe you're looking for a church home. We'd love to have you here. Or maybe you just need prayer. You just need some prayer. I would love to pray with you. How would the Lord lead you? I just... I would just ask that you respond to him in obedience. Whatever that looks like, just respond to him. He loves you. That's what his word says. And it's true. Larry? Well, here I am again.